Good evening, everyone. I think we're on now. I'm not sure. I'm uh, right now trying to get this thing up and running. Uh, and I apologize for our lateness. For those of you that have held on, uh, thank you for holding on. We have been uh, having some technical difficulties because for those of you that have been tuning in week after week, you know that last week we actually talked about uh, the fact that we were going to do a remote broadcast out in beautiful Phoenix, Arizona at Best Practices. And that was our plan right up until just a few days ago when uh, a couple of, of glitches for me travel-wise made it uh, unable, that I was unable to go to Best Practices this week. So we figured, well, what are we going to do? We had already said to our, our wonderful uh, uh, host out at Crosspoint, take the week off, uh, that we were not going to need to be out there. So so I thought, hey, what if we just did a live stream right here in the Whitby compound, uh, our, our condo? And, uh, and so I've been trying to set that up tonight. Uh, and thanks to our dear friend Anne in our district office, who has been trying to coach me through this, even as she's back out in Arizona. But anyway, folks, good to have you with us tonight. For those of you that uh, that uh, stuck around and tuned in, I'm glad that you did. Uh, we're in week three of Incarnate Community Live, where we're looking at the various things that, that kind of inspired me to, to sit down and, and write a four-session Bible study that looks at community, but looks at the blessing of community, that is in person and and how our Lord uses us that way to bring the touch of his gospel grace to share that good news of Christ with others in in a very human physical way and and tonight i got I gotta tell you you know thinking about being out in arizona i I honestly we we had planned some exciting stuff i I was hoping to have like a live group that would be there with us to maybe cheer us on, uh, to maybe have a, uh, like even a segment that we would call like, you know, uh, uh, Lutheran on the street and interview some of our fellow Lutherans from around the country who are out of best practices this week uh, and, and was hoping to even get a, a wonderful guest uh, with uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Kevin Borchers at Concordia University, Chicago, to, uh, to sit down and talk with us a little bit about campus community and how our younger people have been impacted by the pandemic, and, and how, how that may shape even their ministry going forward for those who will go into church work, but also for those who will be witnesses of Christ's love as lay members throughout their lives at various churches as well. All that was planned. All of it would have been great. But tonight instead, you're going to get a little bit more of a down-to-earth, kind of unplugged, if you will, uh, uh, evening with me, or at least another 15, 20 minutes with me. And and I thought since I since I wasn't able to have all of those other uh, uh, you know components to the program tonight, what I thought I would do tonight is to is to kind of walk with you a little bit through my concept of the first three sessions a little bit of uh, of what I was hoping to set forth in them, and and hopefully that'll that'll shape a little bit more your study and your study groups as they've walked through these materials, and I would encourage you as well. Uh, if you'd like to participate, giving me a question to answer as well or two, I would welcome that tonight as well. So let me give you the number. Uh, you can reach me at 847-630-3357. Feel free to text me your question, comments, 
and I'll do my best to respond on the fly here as as I'm flying a little bit solo tonight and and really do appreciate that you stuck with me. So so let's let's take a look at then kind of my thought, my concept in in setting forth this study. Uh, as as we were hearing from a number of churches how you know people were saying they were hesitant to return to in-person ministry. And some were even saying that they really kind of like the idea of, of having an online contact to their congregation, to other congregations, and realizing that we might lose something if a portion of the body of Christ were to absent themselves from in-person ministry. I, I wanted to turn the perspective and focus on not only the positive aspects of, of in-person, incarnate community, but really also to look at why did God create creatures that would bear his image and reflect his image in the world. And so conceptually, going back to session one just a little bit, uh, there we see that God does. He, he, as he creates creatures in his image, he creates them to be incarnate creatures, creatures that have a flesh and blood relationship, an in-person experience of life. And, and I got to thinking about it. Why, why does God create creatures that reflect his image? And, and and how exactly do they do so? And, and again, we, we looked at in week one, we looked at the idea that, that uh, as Lutherans, we know full well that being created in God's image, Adam and Eve were sinless, they were eternal creatures, that they were, they were able to choose the good. Um, but it, it got me to dig a little bit deeper for my own, my own research, my own devotion, and realize that, that really Adam and Eve reflect God's image as well in, in that fact that they were brought together to not only steward life and care for others, but also to give life as well. That it really isn't about them being sentient beings or even beings that communicate through language because God had created angels as well and angels are able to do those things. But scripture does reveal to us that angels don't give life in the image of God as, as married couples were intended to do. And that, that, that there's no indication in scripture that, that angels were, were delegated stewardship and care of other creatures. That was actually given to humanity. And so I think that those are two aspects where humanity was to reflect that image of God and how we cared for God's creation and how we were able then, we were endowed by God through the gift of holy marriage to create other human beings that would bear his image. And notice that then God in that gift was creating a greater and greater sense of community as families would, would gather together and as families grew and became then neighborhoods and towns and nations and a world filled with those who would reflect who God is. Now we lost that image as we had, as we had shared as well. Uh, and so what was God going to do? Uh, and rather than simply uh, uh, throw his image away or, or the creatures that were to bear his image, now notice that God is going to re-give his image, so to speak. And, and how's he going to do it? He's going to actually sanctify human creation again by taking on human flesh himself. And so the word, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, becomes a human. And as he does so, he becomes that perfect reflection of the image of God again in his earthly ministry, where again he comes flesh and blood and does very flesh and blood in-person things that bring the touch of Christ's love to others. And and in, in session two, and in, in the uh, second podcast that we did with uh, uh, with our dear friend, uh, uh, Pastor Davies, 
we, we were able to kind of talk about some of those encounters that Jesus has. And I wanted to circle back and just reemphasize again, isn't it amazing to realize that, that the, I think anyway, that the most times that we find Jesus in a flesh and blood encounter in Scripture, it's usually with a small group of people or even just a one-on-one encounter. That, uh, that yeah, we do have Jesus uh, uh, certainly feeding the 5,000. He certainly addresses the crowds in, in uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount. We hear of large crowds following Jesus and like entire villages receiving the touch of his healing care. But when scriptures actually slow down and give us a, a, a real encounter where Jesus gets to, to intimately deal with fallen creatures, it's often on a one-on-one basis, and yet, when God brings that touch of his grace to one person, it actually winds up rippling out to a larger community to bring a witness to them as well. Like the woman at the well, Jesus encounters her, he gives her the gift of, of hearing that he is the Messiah, and then notice she goes off and tells an entire town, and a town now comes and they get to hear Jesus as well. They spend days with him. And now they say that they believe because of what, first what the woman had said, but now they get to see and hear for themselves. But it was through her testimony that they got to draw near to Jesus as well. And and so notice then that as we move into lesson three, that's where we actually wind up now, where, where we saw Jesus bringing that touch of his grace that ripples out to others through himself, through his own personal ministry, now in session three, we actually delve into the reality that now Jesus actually brings his image to bear in his church and, and brings his touch of grace through his church as well. Yeah, and, and that's where the, the two scriptures, as we slow down in session three, the two scripture readings that we really get into then are, are in John and in Luke. And in John, we get this beautiful description of Jesus now coming and, and assuring his disciples of, of uh, his resurrection, that he is physically risen from the dead, that it's not merely spiritual or it's not, it's not some sort of wishful thinking or even a legend, that he's actually physically alive. And as he's physically alive in his incarnate glorified body, that, that now, notice what he does. He does those things that uh, that that move his church forward in carrying out his good news message for the world. And the one thing they does that, that would seem rather odd in today's world, uh, would even seem possibly offensive in today's world, uh, especially with all of the divisions and all of the trials that we have around the pandemic, Jesus does something that I think we, we gloss over in John, at least I do, very quickly and easily, and yet, if we slow down, we realize it's a really significant act. That right before, as he's telling them, peace be with you, as he's saying that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit, as he's going to send out his church in the same way that the Father sent him, which is to be the one who gives the good news of salvation. As he's about to send his church out, notice that in John, we hear that Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone, their sins are forgiven. If you retain any, they're retained. And, and it's that breathing part. I mean, that would seem really weird, wouldn't it, to us? And, and if you and I were in a room together and we were, we were visiting, and, and, or, if I, or if I was new to you and you just met me and I, I introduced myself and said, Hi, I'm Pastor Chris. If I did that to you, 
You'd think I was crazy, wouldn't you? You'd find it odd at the very least. You might even be a little bit offended in today's world that I would actually put my breath on you. So what exactly is it that Jesus is communicating by breathing on his church, on his disciples? And that takes us back to that, that, that beautiful uh, uh, concept in Lutheranism that scripture interprets scripture. That, that expressions in Scripture, that we look for how they're used and how they're found in other places in the Bible. And notice, when God breathes in Scripture, some significant things happen, doesn't it? I mean, the first time that we get an account of God breathing, it's at creation, where he breathes the breath of life into Adam, and now Adam becomes a living being. One who reflects God's image, one who is equipped to do God's service, one who actually is fit to receive God's grace. Now Jesus breathes on his church that, that eighth day, if you will, that resurrection night on that first Easter. Jesus now breathes on his church, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And I think that God is communicating to us there that he is creating now the body of Christ. He's creating the church that will bear the image of God in this world. That the Lord, in giving us his grace and in sanctifying us as his church, now moves us to be like Christ. If you think about it, that's the way that humanity was to be from creation. We were to be like God. And so now, Jesus, in giving us the gift of his grace, the, the good news of salvation and his resurrection, now breathes on his church, and his church is now ready to be Christ-like in this world. And how do we do that? And that moves us on to the second part of that lesson, the, the big part, uh, to, to look at Luke. And in Luke chapter 10, we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, uh, But before I get there, I want to remind you all, if you've got a question for me, uh, as, as author, tonight you got me one-on-one. -on -one. I don't have a guest tonight. Uh, uh, so if you've got any questions, again, let me give you the number. It's 847 Six three zero three three five seven. Again, that's eight four seven six three zero three three five seven. We'll be a little bit abbreviated tonight as we started a little bit late, but want to give that to you again. Uh, and that way, I can answer any questions that you have. But uh, but as we transition, then as as God creates His church by the means of grace. And he brings us into uh, the body of Christ, even as Paul talks about that we're the body of Christ and each one of us is a member of it. Now, our Lord sends us out to be like him. And, you know, that's where the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, I, I know that you've probably heard messages, I know I've heard messages, I've, I've preached messages, where I've taken the parable of the Good Samaritan and kind of made it just a, a works-type parable uh, that we're to go out and do good to others. And and that is ultimately true. But I think that, that Jesus is giving us a much deeper understanding of how sanctification bears fruit in our lives through this parable. Because notice the context around it. Again, it, it's told in the context of community. That there's a group that is there in Jesus' teaching. And an expert in the law stands up, kind of puts himself on level with Jesus. And he's done it to test Jesus. That he wants to put him to the test, which probably means that the lawyer probably already figures that he knows the answer to his own question. I've heard lawyers actually say to me, never ask a question that you don't already know the answer to. And so he stands up probably assuming that he knows what, he's, what the answer is. And he says to Jesus, having done what, 
will I inherit eternal life? Yeah, if you think about that, I mean, that's an odd way of thinking, isn't it? Because after all, what do you do to inherit something? You know, you and I don't do anything to inherit. Rather, instead, someone else does something. Ultimately, they write a will and they die. And yet, this kind of already sets us up for an understanding of how this lawyer thinks. And so, we've got the lawyer, and he's, and he's thinking this way, and he asks that. Now, Jesus responds, and he responds with a question back that he does know the answer to. Jesus says, how does the law read? How do you read it? And what he's saying there is, how when you stand up as an expert and teach others, how do you teach them? And notice the expert in the law, he gets it right, right? Love. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus answers, you're right. Do that. Fulfill the law of God, and you'll inherit eternal life. But the guy now looks at the second table of the law, and he says, how, you know, who's my neighbor? Probably doesn't have to worry about the first table of law because he probably assumes that he fulfills that perfectly. And he could probably publicly point to different things. But now we've got Jesus asking him this question. And you've got, you've got, uh, um, you know, you've got now the expert in law trying to justify himself of who his neighbor is. That's how Jesus then tells the parable. And I'll get to the end of that parable here in just a moment. I've got a question coming in. And this is from Lori. Uh, and uh, it says, God always manages to show his answers in front of us right when we need them. And also from Doreen, she says, and, and thanks to, to both of you for sending stuff in. She says, makes me think of how we take our last breath on earth, but our first breath in heaven. Yeah, isn't that amazing to think? That as, as Jesus breathes on us, that now we have that, that gift of life as well, not only here, but in eternity as well. And before we reach eternity, Jesus now would have us go and do likewise to the Good Samaritan. Yeah, but notice, who is the Good Samaritan? You know, and, and as I look at this parable, uh, you know, the way that the, the expert in the law heard it, he probably assumed that he needed to be the Good Samaritan. That meant that he needed to go out and... and uh, risk himself and do good to those whom he had no idea if they were his neighbor or not, and he had to do that perfectly, and that's how he would still inherit eternal life. But is that the only way to hear the parable? Is to project ourselves into the role of the Good Samaritan? And I'd offer to you tonight that that's not the case. That rather, And even if, if that was the case, then you and I would have to hear it the way the expert in the law heard it, and he probably heard it as law. And therefore, it was condemning because he could never fulfill being a good Samaritan perfectly. But rather instead, before I identify with anyone else in the parable, I first identify with the man who fell among the robbers, who was stripped and beaten and left for dead. For me, those robbers are, are sin, my own sin, the world, Satan. They leave me for dead. And notice that image of stripped, beaten, and left for dead is actually the image that Christ himself will bear on the cross. And there may be some who will come by me in my sinful ways and say, wow, I don't want to get involved like the priest and the Levite do for the, for the man who's left by the side of the road. But our good Samaritan Jesus comes right to where we are, flesh and blood, binds us up, put us, puts us at the end, takes care of us, puts resources down at the end and says, if, you have, if it costs any more, when I come back, I'll pay you. you know, I think the end that they're taught that Jesus is talking about or referring to is the church itself. Where our Lord brings his wounded, 
He gives us resources of word and sacrament to care for others. And he says, if it cost you more in serving me than what I gave to you, when I come back, I'll reward you in full. And he will. And now, knowing that Jesus is that good Samaritan, and that I'm the one healed, you're the one healed, now touched by that gift of grace, we have the chance to be like him, to go and do likewise as Christ. And so tonight, folks, wanted to share that with you uh, uh, and uh, and just give you kind of a little insight into to where I see the, the study going, because there is where now you and I equipped with that gift of grace. We're in a different spot than than we were before that. At one time, you and I were people who then, you know, we were self-centered, we were sinful. Now in the gift of grace, we're free from that and free to be like our Savior and pursuing him in learning what he's like in Scripture as well. Well, folks, it went quick. It was a little bit shorter. Thanks for uh, sticking around with me tonight as we were a little bit delayed. And I pray this was a blessing for you. Next week, we're back at Crosspoint. We'll have our fourth and final guest, and that is uh, the, the pastor at Crosspoint as well, Pastor John Scott. Going to be great to have him and talk with him about that final idea of what the church is occupied with until such time as the church is finally home in our eternal community. Thanks, everyone, for being here tonight, and God bless you.